Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text for our sermon is Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, which I will read at the end of today's sermon. It was a busy day for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In fact, every sermon I have preached for several weeks now out of Mark have all been part of that busy day. And so a, a doctor working in an emergency room where there had been a crisis or something would know a very busy day in which they ultimately collapse at the end of the day. Jesus had healed many people, so it was a busy day for a doctor, let alone one who does things by doing miracles, right? And let's not forget something that medicine can't explain. Jesus had exercised several demons that day. Oh yes, and the higher mucky-mucks, if you will, from Jerusalem had sent the experts in the law to try to find something to go after Jesus with. And so Jesus ultimately ends up even debating them, if you will. Debate's not the right word because he just flat out told them. There was no debate. But they had seen him exercising those demons and they said he was possessed by an unclean spirit and that he performed those exorcisms in the name of Beelzebul, the Lord of the dung heap, in other words, by Satan. He showed them the folly of their logic, but he'd also taken on the experts in the law that day. Oh, and, and let us not forget, because the Sanhedrin was very frustrated with him and that, uh, his own brothers and his mother came, and basically the plan was to get him outside where they could grab him and take him home because they thought he'd lost his mind. He needed a break, right? That wasn't the end of that very busy day. The crowds kept pressing around him and we seem to think just by logic that it was probably Peter's boat. Remember, Peter was a fisherman uh, by profession originally till Jesus called him to be an apostle. And so they set out in Peter's boat just a ways away to use it as a pulpit where Jesus could preach to those large crowds. And he told many parables that day in the very long sermon that he gave. And then he goes out of the boat back into the house to describe and explain those parables to the disciples and along the lines, he finally, as evening comes, Christ says to his disciples, let's go to the other side. And so they left the crowd and they are taking him along in the boat just as he was, as exhausted as he was on that busy day. And there are other boats accompanying him. So it's not just Peter's boat with the 12 disciples in it. And a furious storm of great winds arises. You almost can picture that like a crater there where the Sea of Galilee, or also known as the Lake of Gennesaret, is, is at the bottom of it. And so when winds hit that, it's like hitting a funnel and then pouring on its way down. And by the time it got to the lake, well, it's nasty. We're told, and the waves are breaking over into the boat so that the boat is already being filled. Waves just breaking in, filling up that boat, and it's going down. Now, Peter, James, and John were all professional fishermen. They start doing everything they can to salvage that boat. We're told, and Jesus is sleeping in the stern on the cushion. It's an exhausting day and he's out cold. After doing everything they can, we're told by Mark, literally, and so they are waking him up. This isn't just one person, uh, Lord, Lord, can you wake up and deal with this? People in even other boats are screaming, Lord, things are going bad and they're saying, Teacher, doesn't it bother you that we are perishing? 
Don't those words ring in your ears? Haven't you ever thought that yourself? I've had many Christian friends who have an abomination that calls themselves a pastor serve them and they are just killing their church. Lord, doesn't it bother you that we are perishing? Or what about the church that is struggling to stay faithful to the word of God and that church that gives itching ears what they want to hear are just stealing sheep right and left? Lord, doesn't it bother you that we're perishing? Or what about when you have a friend who they are being tempted by that whitewash to look like Christianity cult, but they have a different God, but... Let's admit it, cults often use love. They seem to care more than we do when the friend's got financial problems or cars are breaking down and your friend is being whitewashed by them and you've been witnessing to them for years. Lord, doesn't it bother you that my friend is perishing? Let's step outside the church for a moment and take a look at our nation. Our nation is becoming more and more godless. And as they abandon God, we see our nation falling apart. Lord, doesn't it bother you that our nation is perishing? And what about Christians all over the world persecuted by other religions and other countries by their governments? Lord, doesn't it bother you that they're perishing? What about you? What happens when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, I'm sorry. It's cancer. I'm sorry, the reason why you can't remember those things you love so much is because you have Alzheimer's. Our bodies get older and weaker. Lord, doesn't it bother you that we're perishing? And what about in our own churches today where members of of an older generation were always there, always vigilant, always working. And that younger generation, they sit there and they whine and they demand about the things they want, but they don't seem to be willing to lift a finger to make it happen. Lord, doesn't it bother you that we're perishing? I don't have the health anymore and no one else in the congregation stepping up. I could go on all day and I could hit many different ways in which the storms of life have hit you or friends and you have wondered that, Lord, doesn't it bother you that we are perishing? The disciples exhausted every effort along with everybody else. This is not just the 12 apostles. Uh, they exhausted every effort they could to try to save themselves before they finally screamed, Lord, help us. They before more than one seems to be there trying to wake him up. But we're told in verse 39 of our text. And then he woke up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, quiet down and be having been muzzled. I really am fascinated by how Mark records Jesus's words. Because he says it in the passive, but he says it in the perfect tense, meaning if you come up to a dog and you muzzle it so it can't bark, have that already happen so that you're already quiet now. Very urgent there. And what's the result of Jesus saying those words? And so the wind died and it became very calm. And then he said to them, why are you cowering? Do you still have no faith? Oh, how can the Lord be so mean? Why are you acting like a bunch of cowards? Where's your faith at? Don't you have any? Now, these people believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament. 
So if that's all that they believe, he's the Messiah. If you follow through the thinking then, if he's the Messiah, they're not going to drown because if all the boats go down with the wave, then he dies and his being the Messiah is to no purpose. So God the Father himself has to be working. Things are going to be okay. Jesus is the Messiah. They often forget, though, and probably here they have forgotten that the Messiah was true God taking on our humanity to save us. The one through whom those first words were spoken, let there be light, is the one who says, quiet, be having been muzzled. The one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush and said, I'm sending you. The one who led the people of Israel in a burning pillar of a cloud. He's the one asleep in the stern of that boat. They had exhausted all their efforts. They had forgot that he is true God. And they feared a great fear, and they were saying to one another, Who then is this man that even the wind and the sea obey him? And again, the way it's stated in the inspired Greek that Mark wrote in isn't, They obeyed him this one time. They recognize, this is a gnomic present, Any time Jesus tells that the wind or the sea to do something, they're going to do it. And they feared a great fear, and they were saying to one another, Who then is this man that even the wind and sea obey him? This is the God man. And that's why they didn't need to fear. Now, let me take for one minute, even if they had died that day, they had no reason to fear because Jesus had come to save them. They would be in heaven. So when you and I look at these things and we say, Lord, doesn't it bother you that we're perishing? Remember. God has you in his hands. If you die, it's going to be okay. Your soul's going to heaven. You're going to get a new and uh, the new heavens and the new earth and a glorified body. But that day, that's not what was going to happen. See, Jesus is true God. And as true God, he's all knowing. And that means he knows everything that's bothering you. He knows every concern. He knows every decision you're going to make. He knows every decision you could possibly make. And the outcome of every one of those decisions throughout your whole entire life, because he's God and he knows everything, every thought of every human being who has ever, does, and ever will exist. And because he's true God, he's all-powerful. Again, he's the one who spoke those words, let there be light. He's present everywhere. That's not like people of animistic religions where they think the tree is God and the deer is God. No, but God is present everywhere. And at this time, Jesus isn't using all the powers of his godhood. But when he ascends, he is. He knows all things. He's present everywhere because of his godhood. And that's been communicated to his manhood now. He's the king of creation. And so this God was conceived in the virgin's womb. Lived even through temptations like this, through troubles like this, and never once wavered so that he could credit you with his never saying, Lord, doesn't it bother you that we're perishing? With his never being sinful, with his always being faithful and true to the word, he's credited you with that. And yes, he went to the cross 
so he could take away all of our sins, including our sins when we're believers of forgetting that God is present everywhere, all-powerful, all-knowing, and ruling for us. He dies and he empties that tomb. He rises, proof that your sins are paid for in full, proof that God loves you, and then 10 days later, or 40 days later, he ascends to heaven where he is now ruling over all creation for you. And if he who knows all is present everywhere and is all powerful is ruling over all creation for you, when you are worried, Lord, doesn't it bother you that I'm perishing? He says, why are you bothered? I'm ruling over creation for you. I have your good in mind. If the good in mind is to call you to heaven that day, you're gonna be perfectly happy how it turned out. But even when it's not that, even when it seems like the waves keep pounding on us, even when it seems the boat's gone down and the waves of life are dragging us around and we finally make it to the shore exhausted, God had a plan in all of that. He had a plan to strengthen your faith. He had a plan to show you where your faith was weak. He had a plan to put you in that position so that your unbelieving neighbor would see you clinging to the Lord. He had a plan to use that so that you would witness to your neighbor. Yes. Really, the question isn't, Lord, doesn't it bother you that we are perishing? We're looking at it completely the wrong way. Lord, I'm not all-knowing like you. And so, you have a plan. I trust you. I can trust you because you took on human flesh, lived, and died for me. All I can do, all I need to do is, is wait. Wait to see your hand of deliverance and see the outcome of this. Because you would not let me suffer this unless you had a good in mind for me and my neighbor. Lord, doesn't it bother you that we are perishing? God's not going to let you perish until it's time that he is determined to call you to heaven, in which case, when that happens, you are going to be perfectly happy because you're never going to have to deal with the storms of life again. You're never going to have to deal with sin. It's a weak faith. I often have to remind myself when the storms of life come, the tomb is empty. Jesus is God. He's in control. Let's pray to him. Yes, in good stewardship, you and I use the things that we have in this life. We don't have to act suicidal like, you know, I'll just run blindly into this and the Lord will take care of it. But God is in control. And even when it doesn't seem so, he has a plan and he's taking care of us. Lord, doesn't it bother you that we are perishing? It bothered him so much he took on human flesh and saved you. And with that knowledge, you and I can say, he promises this is for my good and the good of my neighbor. Let his will be done. He knows what I don't. And so we take our problem to him in prayer. We be good stewards like they were trying to row and stuff like that. But we know he's in control and we see and we, we, we trust that he has saved us. And he's working even in those things for our good. Amen. As I said, our text for our sermon was Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. That text says, On that day when evening came, Jesus said to them, Let's go over to the other side. After leaving the crowd behind, the disciples took him along in the boat, just as he was. Other small boats also followed him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were splashing into the boat, so that the boat was quickly filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. They woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care that we are about to drown? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. The wind stopped. There was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Do you still lack faith? They were filled with awe and said to one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. This is the gospel of our Lord. 
And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.